0: Welcome to the Big Turtle Podcast. Uh, today we have Koral das Gupta. She's a Mumbai-based author and an artist. And uh, she has embarked on um, a series of books on the Panchakanyas, which are five iconic uh, female characters from uh, Indian myth- mythology and history. And... Uh, she has tried to reverse the gaze and uh, explore some lesser-known uh, aspects of their personalities and their lives. So I will let uh, Koral Dasgupta introduce herself, and then we can go into the meat of, the, of her uh, work. Uh,
1: thank you so much, Vikram. Uh, so uh, I have been an author since 2012. Uh, the before uh, the Panchkanya series, which is uh, formally called the Sati series, uh, I had released four books. And uh, Panch Kanya, as you say, is about five iconic women of Indian mythology. And uh, they were called five Kanyas, which, uh, Panch Kanyas, which has been translated as five virgins uh, by scholars. And it's very interesting that why these women would be epitomized as virgins and what is in it, in the word, and in these women. So it's a very uh, pleasant, interesting, and exhaustive journey to be writing these books. A huge, huge learning and uh, a lot of uh, philosophical unlearning and relearning in these things for me. Uh, other than authoring, I run a story platform called TellMeYourStory.biz.
0: Okay, very nice. Um, so, what was the spark that uh, led to this series and the first book in this series? And then, how did you decide you wanted to uh, do, uh, you know, like all five, or did it start with uh, all five?
1: No, uh, the. There were quite some factors, and I have been comparatively well-read in mythology compared to many others in my generation. Uh, so, uh, these five women, they are, as I say, Panch translated as five virgins. And uh, it's not very uh, usual for anybody to think of a Kunti or a Draupadi as a virgin. So it did strike to me that why were these women called? I mean, why is this virginity thing being epitomized? So the first thought that came to my mind was that probably uh, the writing is regressive. Uh, But then you tend to seek answers and you try to find them. And I figured that the writing is not regressive. Regressive has been the many eras of telling these stories the way we had been told the stories have been extremely regressive and uh, some women have been hidden some uh, mythological women have been hidden or they have been kind of mellowed down so that there's not much attention on them uh, we have been told that uh, women should not cross boundaries if they do something bad happens we have been told that uh, women are supposed to behave in a particular way, tend in a particular way. And there are certain womenly things that they must follow, that's protocol. So when you actually read these stories uh, a little to discover, you actually see the scope of interpretations that are far more uh, modern and liberal compared to the stories that we have been told when we were children. In fact, we have not been told. We have heard that Arjun and Karna and Krishna are great warriors. We don't know much about the women. We know that Draupadi was the one who was molested. Draupadi was the one who cooked very well. Uh, We know that Kunti was the mother of five uh, sons. We don't know much about these people. We have heard about the bravery of the men and not much about the women. Chitrangada, who was supposed to be a warrior princess, hasn't been discussed much. When we were children, we were not told much about Chitrangada uh, or her story. So there are many such discrepancies, and it's endless. I would rather let the discussion flow to bring these up more.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So Kanya, is that uh, literally a virgin, or can it also mean young girl, unmarried, or just woman so, young woman i mean or is it is that the only uh, meaning so
1: panchkanya the term has been uh, translated by scholars as five virgins uh, translation has not been done uh, by the original writer obviously, but the original writer did mention panchkanya two things happened after that one was trying to understand the importance of kanya, it could, be, uh, it could relate to the youth, and it could also relate to virginity. Youth is fine. Now when it comes to virginity, it does not, Hindu philosophy in fact, does not lay much importance on the body, Right. It gives complete importance to the larger than body existence, yeah. which is about the mind and the soul. So when it says kanya or even when it denotes virginity, it actually talks about how untouched you are to the many provocations that you might have to step out of your uh, character and uh, do something which probably is not something that you believe in. There are many provocations, there are many invitations where I would probably did, I mean, kind of distract from my goals. These are the five women who didn't, who were very clear about who they were, what were their scopes, what they wanted from life, and why did they, they did whatever they did. And that is the reason it is said that if you take the name of Panchkanya's again, one slok which has been raised by the ancient uh, literary or, which says that slok says that if you take the names of these five women early in the morning then your day and your life becomes richer and richer obviously not in terms of uh, yes. material there yeah. but in terms of your characteristic growth the second thing that happened is in the many retellings a few people came up with the concept of sati now panch sati is very different from panch kanya okay. panch sati utsita, these kind of women and the Pansati concepts actually talk about those women who were very obedient to their husbands who tried to be very loyal who tried to be uh, you know uh, very chaste in terms of the their the choices related to their bodies they were the more uh, conservative uh, five compared to these liberal five so that is how the Panchkanya uh, concept is probably laid out. There are many explanations given by different scholars, but the fun of mythology is that these are texts without necessarily passing any rule book of what you should learn from them. They are only stories told, and you are free to uh, interpret, you are free to learn, you are free to see the way you want to. So basically, how you read the stories and how you interpret them
0: sure, sure. is
1: the politics of your mind, sure. and not that of the original writer.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, because that is what I wanted to clear with you is um, because what we are talking about here in your work, which is often, you know, works like these are often called revisionist. There have been a few on Draupadi, And there has Mm. been an attempt uh, to uh, re-examine the Mahabharata through the peripheral characters, not the main characters. And I have done a number of interviews about this with Kartikeya, who wrote that book, Mm. you know. And um, so my question is, uh, is it really revisionist? Or are you just, or is it like you are, uh, re-examining the interpretation of the original text, and so it's not like the authors, you know, uh, who sat and wrote this, uh, meant it to be in, uh, suppress these voices or cast them in a certain way. But the interpretations have uh, have uh, have skewed that way. So which is it? Which is it?
1: No, Vikram, I'm not trying to correct anything. I don't believe that I have the capacity of doing something to that kind of literature. Okay. I'm only interpreting. So the, the latter that you just said, that interpretation-based writing is what I'm doing. Okay. Basically, I have not tried to cross the boundaries, the original boundaries of these stories. There are definitely elements of fiction, but that fiction is to try kind of read between the lines and ex- kind of explain certain aspects of their lives. For example, uh, we just released Kunti. And uh, when you were told the story of Kunti, you know that she uh, got pregnant with Karna uh, after uh, she uh, invited Surya, right? Yes. Now, what happened after that between Kunti and Surya? Uh, Surya can't just be giving a child and leaving her life for good, or is it? Or is it like that? Or is it that there was something which has completely been ignored? Indra, who has given birth with uh, to the greatest warrior of uh, Mahabharata, yeah, disappears from Kunti's life after giving birth to Indra. Sure. How sure. can I mean that be? Or even, I mean, uh, so look at this, if I may uh, draw your attention. Yeah,
0: yeah, sure. Karna
1: is, uh, Karna is always spoken to as the tragic hero, okay. and if you try to ask anybody that why do you call Karna the tragic hero, yeah, it obviously boils down to the same fact that Kunti had abandoned him because of which he lost out on a lot of things. Correct, right.
0: Correct. Correct. Correct.
1: Now. It is said Kunti has abandoned him. Karna was the son of Surya, who gets to see the three decades of the, of, of the world, right? Past, present and future. Yeah. So Kunti hadn't abandoned. Kunti had left the child in the care of the father. There are so many instances in mythology where the father has left the child in care of the mother and gone for his own goal setting. Kunti was the only one probably or among the few ones who did just the opposite, who left the child in the care of the father and went for her own goals because she didn't want the child. After that, Karna is the one who gets the best training from Parashuram, who gets enough love from his foster parents, who comes to combat Arjun. He gets a kingdom Anga in return. And then you call Karna the tragic hero? Kahasa tragic? <laughs> he got everything. Compared to that, Arjun was the one who was the son of the king who had to run for his life from one place to another all his childhood. Other than the fact that he was genuinely talented, got a lot of skill building through Dronacharya, become, became Dronacharya's favorite student, and got a lot of skill building happening at his end. But then Arjun was the one who should have been the golden spoon child. He had to run for his life, saving himself from his cousins. So the entire construct of Karna being tragic hero is related to the fact that Kunti had abandoned him. When the woman had just left him to the father. I'm not saying that was the right thing for her to do. I'm not getting there. But I'm talking about a comparative literary analysis, you know. Right. That these things have happened with others. Yeah. When the fathers have done the same. Okay. Here the mother has been ambitious. You call okay. the mother manipulative. No, yeah. she was just ambitious. Ambitious is a different word and manipulative is a, is a different yeah. word. Yeah. We find it uh, uh, We find it easier to call Kulti manipulative. We have a lot of problem with calling her ambitious. That's my problem.
0: Correct. So just to clarify for viewers and readers... Um, so, Coral uh, published the first book in the series on Ahilia, and uh, she just released the second one, am I right, on uh, Kunti, correct? Yes. So, um, so you are now two books into the series, right? Yes. Um, so, because people may not be aware, and so I just wanted to put it out there. So, uh, can you give us some background on, historical background on Ahilia for those who may have a vague idea. Can you tell us a little bit more about this fascinating character? Uh, yes.
1: Uh, Ahalya was said, is said to be Joan, um, Brahma's daughter. Yeah. She didn't have a mother. Yeah. She was totally her father's vision. So yeah. Brahma had basically crafted her with a lot of ambition, with a lot of uh, you know the artist's pride hmm. that it's his daughter and the best. That is where you see the uh, the parental uh, viewing of every child. You see your child as the best in the world. Mm. So, Ahalya was the best of Brahma's creation as per his uh, understanding. Right. Now, Ahalya was sent to earth. She uh, had her own journey. The. The most interesting thing about Sati series is that on one hand, we are talking about women who were the purest in their mind and uh, the strongest in their characters. And on the other hand, we place Indra in a very strategic uh, way in the lives of all the five women. Indra is there in the lives of all the five. Mm. And uh, while pre rigvedic texts have glorified Indra and Uh, considers him more important even than uh, Mahadev. Pre-Rigveda, Indra's character becomes a philanderous, uh, uh, a treacherous kind of character he has been shown. But strangely, that all these five women who are spoken to be the the purest and the Mm -hmm. strongest, they all have Indra in their lives in some capacity or the other. Now, Indra, the way I see Indra, he is basically the impulse. You see someone and a a poetry might come out of, I mean, you are a man, you see a girl, a poetry comes out. That is Indra. And again, you see a woman and you whistle at her, kind of tease her. That is also impulse and that is also Indra. Mm -hmm. So... The way you see Indra is, again, your character and your politics and not necessarily Indra's. Who is Indra? Nobody knows. But Indra is definitely the god of illusion who is capable of creating that illusory uh, you know, need in you and he yeah. lets you see a lot more than what you are capable of seeing. So when you build up someone like Ahalya, as someone who is supposed to be the most beautiful, the word beauty is an illusion.
0: Right. So
1: you have, while creating Ahilya, built the qualities or the attractive uh, elements of Indra in that, uh, uh, in that woman whom you have constructed with great yeah. care. Yeah. So it was in the construction itself that she was attracted to Indra and Indra was attracted to him. Sure. And in due course of time, she was sent to Earth. She was married off to a sage called Gautam. And uh, I will not give away the crux of the story because there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of shocker in this story because my interpretation is completely uh, different from the usual Ahalya story that we okay. have. The usual story is that Ahalya cheated on Gautam with Indra. And because of that, uh, she was punished. She was turned into a stone, and uh, I have given a completely different interpretation of it. But the way I have seen this uh, this particular story unraveling, and, and yeah, when she turns into a stone thousands of years after, Rama is coming into uh, the forest, and he steps on that stone, and Ahalya becomes Ahalya again from that stone format. Now, a lot of people had a problem that why did Ram have to step on the stone to uh, rediscover Ahilya? That much, that portion I'll definitely give out because I do realize that uh, mythology is not the kind of stories that can be taken on face value. Hmm. Rama was the inc- incarnation of Krishna, and Krishna is, or Narayan for that matter, Vishnu. Vishnu, Narayan, Rama, Krishna, these are your your supreme existence, the God that sits inside you. And Ahalya's story was that, that it took many years for her to unite with her inner God. Mm. And when she found that inner God, stepping over the stone doesn't mean that someone had actually stepped, doesn't necessarily mean that someone had actually stepped on the stone, hmm. or set his foot on the stone to no. liberate her. It is about it takes thousands of years for someone to accept okay. who she is, and to you know free herself, liberate herself from oh. all those things, all those things in the world that tries to chain her down, tries to question her decisions and uh, intentions. Right. And when that person unites with her inner god. That is when she is completely liberated. That is when she doesn't feel the need to explain herself to anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest kind of liberation which Ahalya had witnessed.
0: I see. I see.
1: So, I mean, this is the kind of interpretation that has gone into these storytellings.
0: Got it. It's fascinating. Um, Thank you. And then. The book that you just released—I've um, been reading some very nice things about it. Um, Kunti, who, who is like a very central character in our mythology and our myth making—and but yet uh, it's her progeny and offspring that command the stage. You know, so she is like you mentioned, uh, sort of in the background. And uh, well, not always because those who study, they know the importance, Mm -hmm. but, and obviously in our television series, uh, there were the, you know, the famous Indian television series on, uh, on Mahabharata, on these, uh, on the, the, she was, there were several episodes dedicated Mm -hmm. to her. But so do you want to tell us a little bit about her, the, you know, the matriarch of the Pandavas? and how you have chosen to um, flesh out her story and tell her story or retell her story?
1: Uh, You know, that is the main thing that I wanted to do with Kunti, uh, which is to understand the making of a mother. Uh, When I say mother, it doesn't necessarily have to be biological. Motherhood is an attitude, the way I see it. So if you have, uh, for example, you are running this podcast, you are a mother to this podcast, right? You you want this podcast to grow. You want this to uh, associate with the right kind of friends, which can take it ahead, right? So... Motherhood entails such kind of a planning, such kind of strategizing, mm. and it is futuristic. We see we have stereotyped motherhood, especially in South Asia, mm. as selfless, sacrificing, uh, tear-laden, very niruparoy kind of imagery. Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I wanted to rediscover the mother as someone who is futuristic. Who can see the future in the eye? Yeah. Because she knows what she wants in her future. She knows what she wants in her child. Kunti had actually, uh, you know, basically grounded me into uh, too many times while writing it. Because as much as we call ourselves the practicing feminists, the patriarchy is so deeply embedded wow. in us even in women, that it's very difficult to break certain walls. And yes. you tend to go back to those, uh, uh, to, to you, you find yourself trapped within the traditional beliefs that you have grown up in. Mm. So there were moments while writing Kunti where I had scripted it in a particular way. And then uh, when I was revising, I just felt that, boss, I have written about myself. This is me. This is not Kunti. Because Kunti has every reason. She is a leader. She is uh, looking at the future. She she is the kind of ambitious woman who being a queen from earth wants to uh, be the mother of the child who will be fathered by the king of the heaven. She is that level ambitious. Mm. So given that, she cannot be someone like me. She has to be someone far bigger and her vision her the way she uh, conducts herself will be uh, something that puts everybody in some kind of discomfort yeah. but it's a pleasant discomfort uh, when you read you agree you understand and you probably wonder that whether that kind of change can be uh, included in life now so Kunti, writing Kunti was that kind of a journey where too many times I had to stop myself and correct it so that I could pull myself and detach the author and let the character uh, grow. Kunti was basically exploring motherhood, not from the time when she actually became a mother, but from the time when she was growing up from a child. Uh, For example, she was the daughter of, she was the foster daughter of Kunti Boja. Uh, she was born to Surasena, and Surasena had given him her right. to Kunti Bhoja, okay. who brought her up. Okay. Now, one of the things that very subtly appears in Kunti is where she is questioning that why was she given up? Kunti Bhoja, who is a foster, foster father, asks in great shock that, aren't you happy? Yeah. She says, no, I'm just asking. I'm curious. And Kunti is curious. Throughout the novel, Kunti is curious about everything. And it's a curiosity that lands her into trouble. She ends up calling Surya because of her uh, unbending curiosity. So she tells Kunti Bhoja that, no, I'm just curious. And Kunti Bhoja says that you were born in another house, but you were born in my heart. Right. Kunti accepts that answer with great happiness. But in her mind, she says that as much as I am happy, being a foster daughter, there is something different about being an adopted daughter, about which I cannot complain. I don't have words. There's nothing that I can complain. But there is something in the eyes. There is something something, which I can't explain, but it exists for adopted daughters. And that is true, right? So the entire concept of motherhood mm. has been explored with the timeline of Kunti's life, when she hadn't become a mother, but with everything that is happening to her, she is actually getting closer to being a mother.
0: Very interesting. Um, now when you, uh, you said that you are called, you call this the Sati series. and the figure of Sati or the image of Sati, you know, it has very sort of, uh, it's a very loaded sort of concept because uh, if you if you uh, look at it through contemporary lens, mm. then, you know, it has obviously very negative connotations. Mm. And uh, people have over the ages tried to um, uh, re-examine it or some people have tried to uh, you know, adapt it for modern times, and uh, there are so many interpretations. But and then historically, if you look at what Sati means, and then you look at the whole history of invasions and uh, what the Rajput princesses had had to do, and yeah. um, but the, but the origin, the etymology is obviously uh, from uh, our uh, epics, right? I mean, it's from the Ramayana. Mm. and this is where um, this, uh, uh, she has to kind of immolate herself um, so I'm very interested in tracing this uh, genealogy of how it emerged in the myth mm. and then how it uh, translated into uh, reality historical reality and then the reformist movements uh, you know that tried to banish it Arya Samaj and Brahmo Samaj and um, and today um, how do we see it as a so, so society and or sati as a historical figure you know um, because to feminists it's a red flag you know um, so do you have the same kind of did you have the same kind of Response when and is that what led to your decision to call this the Sati series, or is there another interpretation? You know, um, I no, don't know. Vikram, Would you like does, to shed huh?
1: the naming this the Sati series was actually an irony and a sarcasm, yeah. because uh, Sati, if you see uh, Sati, the way it was practiced in Bengal, right? The historical reference that you have taken where uh, uh, women were burnt in the pyres of their husbands yeah. when the husbands died. Uh, because it was said that uh, that's purity. The, the purity of the woman is in ending her life. Or basically, yeah, the pu- purity of the woman lied in non-existence if the husband uh, didn't exist. Yeah. So uh, everything that you do, that the woman does, must be in ob- in obedience of... Uh, being with the husband. So when the husband is alive, you obey him. When the husband is dead, you obey him there too by dying with him. Yeah. Because, right? Yeah. So uh, actually little young women, those were the, even the the Brahmins, Brahmin daughters who didn't find husbands for themselves, nine year, 10 year old, getting married to a 90 year old. Uh, because the caste must match. So they were married off and when the husband died, the little ones were, uh, the young ones, were thrown into fire, whatever be your age. At a later stage, when this sati system was abolished, it didn't come into a modern system immediately. The widows were, their hair was chopped off, their color were taken away from them. They had to wrap themselves in pristine white. And they had to go to Kashi, Vrindavan, and spend their days there. So basically, even if you don't die, at least you will have to face banishment from being in a proper uh, well-to-do society. You have to give away. I come from Bengal, so I know that uh, you have to give away all kinds of non-vegetarian dishes if you are. if you are into eating those, so no more fish, no more meat. Uh, certain days of the month, fasting is compulsory. Your food will be cooked separately. You will not have the food from the normal kitchen. So there is a complete social, you know, uh, isolation from, uh, a normal, uh, how, uh, from a normal from a normal life. And, uh, and the widow, even if they were allowed to live they got the psychological flu that they didn't belong right now all those were getting done in just like you said rajasthan they followed the practice of johar which was uh, very similar to this Uh, women burning themselves on fire after the husband's death the rajput warrior husband but the difference was that Johar started with the idea that if the husband died in war, then the women won't give themselves as prisoners of war. Yes, they would yes. rather die than give themselves. So it yes. was a little different from sati. Yes,
0: yes, yes. yes.
1: But when it comes to uh, the the sati movement, the sati uh, pratha or the sati ritual that was uh, carried in Bengal. Uh, that was just to tell the woman that this is the way to be pure. This is the way that you don't have any existence. You are so much uh, devoted to your husband that you cease to exist when your husband does. Now, uh, in Pandu, Madri and Kunti story, there is a reference to this which says that when Pandu died, Madri performed sati. She died with Pandu.
0: Okay, okay. Now,
1: if you look, look at that story, yeah. the way I looked at it was Madri's non-existence okay. in the absence of Pandu. Uh-huh. It doesn't necessarily mean that she jumped into the pyre. Nowhere is it written that she jumped into the pyre. But it is just written that she performed sati. Now, it could be simply that madri and pandu were very much in love with each other which kunti was not kunti and pandu were not a, a made for each other kind of a couple okay so given that pandu's death probably had turned madri into a state of non existence it didn't matter whether she existed or didn't because she didn't find any, any further validation in existing even that the love of her life was gone. So that is the reference from there. Coming back to the question, that uh, the reference of the title, Sati series, it was in sarcasm because the entire discourse is about how pure the woman is. The mm. Sati ritual in Bengal tried to prove that the woman is so devoted to the husband mm. that she exists only for the husband. and perishes when the husband doesn't exist any longer mm. that was done to show how pure the woman was and when the woman jumped into the fire and burnt in front of everybody's eyes everybody put their hands on the forehead and chanted slokas of uh, you know uh, they chanted religious slokas mm. to celebrate that one more woman has how inspiring is it that one more woman has died like that It was meant to show the purity of the woman's body Hmm. when sati was never about the woman's body. If it was, then the Panchkanya concept wouldn't have, and the Panchkanya says that these are the five satis whose name liberates you of all miseries and all sins, sins. It liberates you of all sins. Hmm. So. This was never about the woman's body. It was always about the woman's character. Mm. You don't call a Kunti or a Draupadi having pure body in terms of how many men they slept with. Mm. So the entire discourse had been completely misconstrued and misrepresented in uh, in front of a society Mm. by certain uh, stakeholders in the society. And one full society generation after generation fell prey to it and accepted it till one person stood up and said, this is not
0: acceptable. Ramon, right? Right. Right. Um, So this notion of the woman being a martyr. From what I have read, it has not always been the case and it was not always the norm, you know, throughout our history. um, There was a time when women were much more empowered and uh, had agency. And, um, you know, there were things like uh, androgyny and, uh, I mean, there were like different uh, stages that womanhood went through. Even during the Rig Vedic era, you know, you had female rishis called Rishikas. And Mm. um, they were considered very, very, they were very respected, highly respected. And you had like in the Tantric tradition, women are uh, given a lot of importance, the Shakti uh, lineages of India and within Hinduism and Buddhism also. Um, Mm. I'm just curious, like in terms of marriage, marital union, uh, because I've, I wrote an article about these tribes, you know, where w- the woman gets to choose and a woman, if she wants, uh, she can have like a multiple partners and it's not always like forced upon her. The choice is on, you know, there the, are like the Toda tribe and various others uh, that I actually wrote about uh, for this article in India today, like many years ago. Um, So what, you know, even Draupadi, now that has been the bone of contention for historians, like, what is this woman? You know, what was her role? Was she forced into this? Uh, Was it her personal choice? Is it an example of empowerment or disempowerment? You know, there are so many versions that I have read over the years and coming from which your positionality, if you're like one of these rabid, you know, kind of ideologues and you're going to look at it in a certain way. You know, if you are, you know, but, but then there are feminists who are, who claim that this is sort of um, this is an example of empowerment. I don't know, what is your opinion? And, and more importantly, uh, can we talk about the phase in Indian history and in within Hinduism where women were, had a lot more agency? And I wanted to ask you, was there ever anything like divorce in ancient India means initiated by the woman. So I'm very interested if you, I mean, if you know anything about this. Sorry, I know I've asked you about it. I don't.
1: Uh, no, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I can't immediately think of uh, an instance of divorce, yeah. but I do. I can recollect many such instances yeah. where women didn't want the man for their entire life. Correct. They liked a person. Yeah. They uh, spent a particular phase of their life with that person. Yeah. And they were happy to let go. One was Chitrangada and Arjun. Correct. Uh, Chitrangada, in fact, even uh, defeated Arjun in war. Okay. Uh, Then Hirimba and Bhim.
0: Aha. Correct.
1: These were the women, they, I mean, I won't call divorce, but these were the women who very easily uh, specified. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They they weren't the kind of people who say that we want to spend the entire They didn't come to the sasural for that matter. Correct. correct. They refused to come to the sasural. They said that we will stay where we are because we are the princess of this place. Yeah. Uh, we will continue being in our father's place and be the leader here we will not come to your place in a different culture, in a different uh, society. Hmm. So that definitely did happen. Hmm. About women uh, leaving their husbands, that also happened. Uh, Mandodari's mother, Hema, yes. was an Apsara. Okay. She uh, left after her term was over. Uh, with Ma- she, she married Mayasura. Okay. Uh, then Mandudari was not born to them, but they adopted Mandudari. They had two children, Dunduvi and uh, one more, I'm forgetting the name. Uh, Mayavi, Mayavi and Dunduvi. Okay. And after that, she, she left the father. There are many such instances where the mother left the father. Right. Divorce is a more legal term. Yes,
0: yes, yeah. uh,
1: Where yeah. you have a paper uh, in between, probably. Yeah. I don't see that happening either with the men or with the women, where they uh, solemnize uh, an agreement of uh, Ganga left uh, Shantanu, right? But the relationship was forever, which was a very beautiful thing to think about. Which is probably happening today that even after divorce. The relationship remains, yeah, because the child is uh, the priority.
0: Correct, correct.
1: So you see that in Rithik Roshan and Suzanne Khan. So beautifully, they have taken themselves ahead, in spite of the fact that probably the two are no longer together in thinking of themselves as a couple. Such instances have uh, definitely uh, we do see such instances in uh, mythology and history. Sure. Uh, was there anything
0: else said you asked? <laughs> um, yeah, I was talking about, um, you know, these, uh, I was talking about Draupadi yeah. and I was talking about how certain, uh, from a certain positionality, you see it as disempowerment and uh, exploitation. Uh, but there are many who see it as, you know, in the opposite, that she was a very empowered woman and it was her agency. And, you know, that Gandhari, even the role of Gandhari has been kind of re-examined. So all these, we are seeing these new narratives where Gandhari is no longer this helpless victim and nor is Draupadi, you know, but if you look at it through a modern lens and through contemporary feminist activist, whatever you want to call it, lens, then, you know, obviously you are... Uh, compelled to see it in a certain way, but I have read many alternative versions, so I don't know what what is your take on the Draupadi and her five husbands.
1: Draupadi, in fact, is the upcoming uh, book yes. after Kunti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, without giving away what will come in Draupadi, yeah. the way I see Draupadi is one person, or actually, all the five in the series, they have made choices. Yeah. You know, uh, after Draupadi comes Mandodari. And Mandodari is one person, for example, whom I see she has made a choice which is very contrary to a, uh, what do I say, Uh, a choice that is popularly, socially acceptable. Mm. Uh, She has made a choice to stand by the one who she knows is doing certain things in a wrong way. But she has made a choice to stand by that person for reasons which she can justify to herself. The world might say that uh, she stood by the evil, but then she chose her dharma and it is her choice. Similarly, when it comes to Draupadi, the choice was initiated by her mother-in-law, Kunti. But the way Kunti is is very different from the way Draupadi is. You see, in Draupadi, you see that she is a great cook she cooks lavish uh, meals for uh-huh. everybody uh-huh. in the household yeah. right so in a lo- in a lot of ways draupadi's introduction in or draupadi's characterization in mahabharata is that of a, a very typical she has the typical elements of a bahurani you know
0: yeah.
1: In different ways, we have been told that she has she is she was a feisty character. She was an angry character. Uh, she uh, she brought uh, a lot of destruction. I see Draupadi as the 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 avatar of Lakshmi. The way every bahu is right. You welcome that uh, bride in your house saying that this is the Lakshmi of the house. She entered the premises of the Pandavas as the Lakshmi. But when the Vasraharan was uh, kind of uh, uh, strategized or conspired against her, that is when that Lakshmi changed into Kali. So Draupadi has that kind of an arc in her life. The journey from Lakshmi to Kali is a huge temperamental shift. So coming back to your question that the five husband thing, for Draupadi, it was probably just a choice whether to go for it or whether to not go for it. In my story, Draupadi will definitely have a very valid reason to go for it. And that reason will be explained to her by Kunti. Because uh, Kunti was, is shown as a futuristic mother who has certain elements of astrological, she is blessed by Surya, right? Mm. Surya is the one who gets to see past, present and future. Mm. So the one who is so strongly blessed by Surya and is a, company, a companion of Surya will have certain blessings of Surya, which allows her to do certain things. So Kunti's uttering of you guys share among yourselves, will definitely not be a silly utterance, which comes by fluke. There will be a reason why Kunti made that utterance. And Kunti will be answerable to Draupadi and in her entire life, Draupadi is the only woman whom Kunti will answer. All the there are many questions which the book Kunti raises, where you find Kunti taking certain steps which are not popular, but then you accept them as her choice or her, you know, uh, her stubbornness. But Draupadi is one person to whom Kunti will answer each and everything before. Even uh, exposing her fear that stop Arjun from fighting Karna. So that is the kind of thing that I'm planning.
0: Fantastic. Um, and then what are the two after the upcoming after Draupadi? Mandodari and Tara. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Um, You know, so yeah, I think uh, 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 for the scope of this podcast, um, (laughs) we have covered a lot. And uh, I think it's a nice intro for readers and prospective readers into, you know, how your creative process works. And um, yeah, so I I very highly recommend whoever is watching this. And, uh, you know, when it's published, on social media, I will also um, tag you and tag everyone who I think will be interested. And, uh, and, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, I wish you all the best of luck. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you. you for, so much. And thank okay. you for taking the time to come on this podcast. And I'm, I look forward to reading your, at least your first installment, the, the first book in your series. So I'm going to pick it up okay. and start reading. it. Yeah? Coral. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Vikram.
1: It was very nice talking to you too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there will be future interactions. There are cultural events coming up. And I will keep you posted and we'd like to invite you as and when they happen. So forward. Yeah. Thank you, Cora. Thank you. Take care.
1: Thank you so much. And good luck. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Big Turtle Podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify and Google podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time.